Hello, I am Vicki, and this is Murder Sandwich, a true crime and mystery podcast. I am your host, and I'm joined today by Katie. Hello. And we're going to be discussing the Villisca Axe Murders. Ooh. Cue dun-dun-dun. <laughs> if you like true crime and you like some good old Canadian humor from a West Coast Canadian, and if you like sandwiches just as much as I do, then tune in every Tuesday or almost every Tuesday, knowing my luck, and we'll be here with a new story each week. I do really like sandwiches. I've been getting into them more lately. Mm. I know. I've been ge- I've been getting this wine salami. It's it's perfect on a sandwich. Even mm. a bagel sandwich. Mm. That's good. Mm-hmm. So I decided since it's spooktober, we're going to do some spooky ones. I am so to hear for this. Like. Yeah. So today is the first one. So it's not exactly a haunting per se, but it is quite an unusual case. And then I'm still going to be releasing another one. So just in a couple days. And that one's going to be Halloween focused. And then we'll wrap up the month with another Halloween one. So consider this a double feature because you're getting two podcasts only two days apart. You lucky people, you. <laughs> right? <laughs> so with that, go grab a candy corn croissant witch, and let's mow down on some true crime. So Velisca is actually the town where... The family that we're going to talk about lived. Okay. Villisca is a town in Montgomery County in the state of Iowa. And I'm going to say that, like, I, no, I have no idea where that is. <laughs> like, I know the general area, but I am not up to date on my geographical USA. I'm actually, like, not bad. Yeah. Me and Allison from my first episode, we actually used to live together and we used to play a game on this website called sporkle.com. It's like these websites that just have quizzes. And there was this one that you did guess all the 50 states in 10 minutes. And me and Allison would pay it for fun if she's listening. She's probably <laughs> laughing so hard right now. Um, and me and my dad play it all the time, too. And Allison would kick my ass. You nerds. And I know. And she would, one time she got in like a minute and 40 seconds. Like wow. all of the 50 ones. And That's I'm, impressive. Considering we don't really learn that in school. like For sure. So I can actually totally list all of them, but I usually forget like three I'll like miss. But oh, I could list them, but you need to give me like half an hour and like possibly a sneak peek at a map. <laughs> so I get Iowa and Utah like where they are confused, but they are in the Iowa is in the Midwest. Okay. So it's like, yeah, Midwest yeah. area. So this is actually takes place in 1912. The population of Villisca at this point is about 2000 people. Okay. So it's pretty small and it's right on like a like a train. There's like a train station there. Yep. And the next town over actually has like 30 trains pass by it a day. So it's like quite a lot really of, busy then. Yeah. yeah, people go through it a lot. So we're going to be talking about the Moore family. So the head of the family is Josiah Moore and he was born on December 29th, 1868. And he was born in Hanover, which is in Joe Davies County in Illinois. And his parents were Charles Moore and Mary Moore. And from what I could find, it looked like they had a really large family. Like, he was one of 14 kids. Wow. I mean, that's not really that uncommon back then, though. Because they were mostly farming, I'd assuming. It is farming. Yeah, it's mostly farming area, especially in Iowa. So it kind of makes sense. Yeah. 
So Sarah Montgomery, who would later be known as Sarah Moore, she was born in Knox County, Illinois in 1873. And then she moved to Iowa with her parents and her sister in approximately 1894. I could not find pretty much any other information about them other than the fact that Josiah and Sarah were married on December 6th, 1899 at the home of her parents. So they ended up giving birth to four children, the eldest being Herman, who was born in 1901, and then Mary Catherine, who was born in 1903, Arthur Boyd, who was born three years later in 1906, and the youngest, who was Paul, and he was born in 1908. Paul doesn't get a middle name or a second name. (laughs) Just Paul. (laughs) Well, the first one only was Herman. Oh. Okay, so it's just the middle two. My bad. (laughs) Actually, I'm assuming they had middle names. I found different... Like, I found all these different websites that had their middle and first name switched. So oh. I found the first report is her name just being Catherine Mary. And then another one said Mary Catherine. And I was like... Mary Catherine would probably be more accurate to the time. That's what I thought, too. So yeah. that's why I switched it. But I found his Arthur Boyd's name was Boyd. And then I found it being Arthur Boyd. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> so that's my best guess. Okay. <laughs> so Josiah was a leading businessman in the town of Villisca. We'll get a little bit more into his job a little bit later, but you know, the town was booming. It was starting to gain a little bit more of a population and there was uh, like an armory in the town that had just opened mm. up and it was, you know, gaining a lot of visitors and tourists yeah. and stuff. But a military in- action. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the same year that Mary Catherine was born, Josiah would end up purchasing a house in Villisca, Iowa for the family at 508 East 2nd Street. And it would unfortunately end up being the location of the brutal murder of eight people. So unfortunately, the armory after this incident was no longer the talk of the town. Mm, I'd say. It was this house. The house was originally built in 1868. And we'll get into a lot more details on the house later, but it is still standing to this date. I know. I looked up some pictures of it, and they have this big sign outside with, like, some weird bloody writing. I was like, how campy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So the house was a three-bedroom, one-bath. It was quite small, basically just a small kitchen on the main floor, and had a living room, and then beside the living room was their, like, guest bedroom. There was an upstairs, and that's where two other bedrooms were. And that was it. It was quite like a small, quaint house. It, just yeah. the style back then. It's weird to have a guest bedroom in that, like, day and age. Yeah, that's the thing is, like, they called it a guest bedroom. But, like, if you have four kids, why isn't... I think some of-, of the kids did sleep in there, but they kind of label it a guest bedroom. You'll get it in a second. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to spring right in to June 10th, 1912. Mary Catherine, who was 10, invited her two friends, who are Ina May, who's eight, and Lena Gertrude, who's 12. They're sisters. They're part of the Stillinger family. I'll refer to them a lot as the Stillinger sisters. And they asked their parents if they could spend the night at the Moore residence. They've done it like a ton of times. Yeah. So they said for sure. So they agreed and they ended up going to the Presbyterian Church and they wanted to participate in the Children's Day program. And Sarah Moore, the mom, she actually coordinated this program. It was like something that she did all the time. Oh, it was like cool. an annual event and everyone kind of got together and yada yada, you know, yeah. religious church that yeah. <laughs> I unfortunately have never been included in in my whole life. So the program actually ended quite late at around 9.30 p.m., 
And again, small town, they walked like three blocks back to their house. Yeah. And they got there around like 9 45, 10 o'clock. So fast forward now the next morning at 7 a.m. And you know small towns. The next door neighbor gets up and her name is Mary Peckman. And she's kind of concerned because there's like no one outside and Josiah's not out and like It's a Monday morning and she's like, Where are my peeps? Yeah. I wanna say hi to everybody. <laughs> So she was a little concerned and, you know, he hadn't come out to do his morning chores. So she went over and she knocked on their door and nobody answered. And she tried to open the door and discovered it was locked. And this was, like, quite weird for this day and age. Like, people yeah. just, like, didn't lock their doors. No, it's a small town. Why would... Yeah. Like, yeah, that's weird. So she heads into the back and notices, like, the barn, like, none of the horses are out. Chickens are still cooped up. And that's just, like, super weird for Josiah. So she lets the chicken out. And she ends up calling one of Josiah's a million brothers. His name is Ross. And he comes to knock on the door and is screaming through the windows. And he can't see through the windows either. And he can't get a hold of them. So he finds a house key and he opens the door. And instead of going upstairs first, he walks in and he opens the door to the guest bedroom. And he ends up seeing two bodies laying in there with sheets over them. And then he sees, like, blood spattered on Yikes. the bed frame. Yeah. So immediately he yells out to Mary Peckman. He's like, go get Hank, go get Hank. And he was the Villisca primary peace officer. And so Hank shows up and he searches the house. And this is where it's revealed that the entire Moore family and the Stillington girls have been bludgeoned to death with an axe. And the axe was found in the guest bedroom. With the girls. Yeah. And it was only partially cleaned off, just like kind of sitting up on the south facing wall. Like not hiding at all. How does how does one person do all of that without I don't know. So doctors ended up concluding that the murders occurred anywhere between midnight and five AM and they actually found two cigarettes in the attic on the floor. So it suggests that the killer or killers waited in the attic until the Moore family went to sleep and were like watching. Oh, so they them. were they were there when they got home. Yeah. So after they fell asleep, the killer began in the master bedroom upstairs. So if they're in the attic, they just go one floor down. And this is where Josiah and Sarah are sleeping. Unfortunately, Josiah did receive most of the attack and he had a lot more wounds than any other victim. Well, he probably fought back more than anybody else. There was no defensive wounds on him at all. He was hmm. the only one where they used the like actual blade of the axe, and everyone else was bludgeoned by the other side. Interesting. Sounds like a revenge. Yeah, or he's like the <clears throat> biggest one, wants to make sure Quick that the threat... Quick and just get it out. Get it out of the way. Scare everybody else into submission. Maybe. So... The killer actually left, like, gouging marks on the ceiling. He had, like, lifted his arms so high to bludgeon Josiah. Hmm. So he goes over to the next room after attacking Sarah and Josiah. And this is where Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur, and Paul are sleeping. And they are all bludgeoned as well. No defensive wounds or any suggestions that any of them were awake. So this is when the killer actually returns 
to the master bedroom to inflict even more blows on the two parents. And they know this because they actually knocked over a shoe of Sarah's that had filled up with blood. And they could tell that it was, like, kind of after the fact. After they attacked them a second time, which is totally unnecessary, the killer moved downstairs to the guest bedroom. And this is where they, unfortunately, also bludgeoned Ina Mm. and Lena Stillinger. Yeah. So investigators actually do believe that all the victims were asleep, except for Lena. So she had defensive wounds on her arm. Yeah. So she was at some Maybe point that's away. why he went back into the parents' room, because he heard a noise and thought it was the parents. Didn't realize there was people downstairs. Maybe. So she was also lying crosswise on the bed, and her nightgown was actually pushed up to her waist, and her undergarments had been removed. So it was yeah. suggested that she potentially was molested, but I don't know what kind of like reports or investigation they do in 1912 but they did say that it didn't seem like she was assaulted at least interesting so why take the underwear then or why take it off like me like isn't it like an embarrassment thing or i don't know it's fucked up super fucked up so this is where things get like a little bit more dark i know more dark than eight people being murdered yes So, the killer went back upstairs after killing the Stillinger sisters, and this is when he systematically just reduced all the heads of the six people in the Moore family. He left their faces absolutely unrecognizable by bludgeoning them even more, and in total, there was actually 30 strikes to Josiah mainly in his face, so much that his eyes were, like, gone. Like, they didn't exist. That is so fucked up. Yeah. Like, total overkill. Yeah. Like, why? So the killer then took all the bedding off of all the beds, and they covered Josiah and Sarah's shattered heads. Yeah. And then covered all the children upstairs, as well as the Stillinger girls. And then also hung up every single mirror and piece of glass in the house, covered those with sheets as well. What's the point of that, though? Like... Does he not want to see himself? There's a lot of super superstitions about it. Wait, yeah, I guess so. There's a lot of superstitions about mirrors way back when. Yeah. The theory that I thought immediately was like, he just murdered these people and he didn't want to see them in the mirrors or like something to do with their souls or spirits in the mirrors. Mm. Something like that. I don't know. But it explains why Ross couldn't see inside any of the windows either. Yeah. Did they, Did he cover all the windows too? Yeah. All windows, all glass, all mirrors. I wonder, did he do that first? It said he did it after. And I'm assuming they know that because there was blood on them. Oh. Is my assumption. So at some point as well, the killer also took a two pound slab of uncooked bacon from the icebox. So random. (laughs) And what a segue, right? Wrapped it in a towel and left it on the floor of the downstairs bedroom where the Stillinger sisters were found. And they also found it close to a short piece of, like, a keychain that none of the Morris family said belonged to them. Mm. Which is just bizarre. Investigators figured that he stayed in the house for actually quite some time because they also found, like, a bowl filled up with water and that it had been clear he was, like, washing his hands in it for, like, quite a while. I guess you'd want to clean yourself up. I guess so. And, like, back then... They didn't have just... 
I'm assuming they didn't have regular taps. It's probably like the well. Yeah, the well and the bucket system. Yeah. Sometime before 5 a.m., he abandoned the lamp at the top of the stairs because he like did this in the, all the dark, right? So he right, had to lights. light a lamp from the fireplace, I believe I read. And so he left it at the top of the stairs and left silently, locked the doors behind him. The doors did lock only from the inside. There wasn't, you don't, you don't like flick it from the inside and then close it. So like he took a key with him or had one already. Interesting. And then vanished. So after the bodies were discovered, members of the town all came to the Moore house to see what was going on. It's actually reported a hundred neighbors and townspeople traipsed through the house. What? Yeah. Through the house? Yeah. It's like John Bunny Ramsey all over again with all those people traipsing through the crime scene. Oh my gosh. But I mean, at least in JonBenet's case, they should have known better. This <laughs> They probably didn't have any. No. No. No technology. No nothing. What's even more crazy is that it is reported that some people took part of Josiah's skull as a keepsake. Well, the so they went through while the bodies were there? Yes, dude. They That's sick. They didn't remove the bodies till 10 p.m. And people were there, like, in the morning. Like, while the coroner and stuff was there. Like, taking pieces of Josiah's skull. Is that not... What? Like, the most disgusting thing you've ever heard in your whole existence. Truly. <laughs> like... Like, has it been passed down to families? Like, is there still someone with this, like, poor soul? Here, my dear. This right here is a corner of Josiah Morris' skull. I took it from a crying scene many moons ago. <laughs> like, please keep this. It may ward off against serial killers. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, that is, like, I'm a true crime fan. But, like, that is next fucking level. <laughs> I think that goes beyond next fucking level. Like, that's... I'm sorry, but, like, everyone knows each other, right? So, like, I walk into a crime scene. I see, like, this profound, like, businessman, like, well-known in the community, like, family man, like, church-going folk, right? My first thought when I see someone bludgeoned to death is not, oh, I must, I want a piece of their skull. (laughs) I'd be, like, horrified and I'd run out. Yeah. That sounds serial killer-esque to me. Maybe because there's no TV back then. They were like, wow, this is, like crazy i'm never gonna see this again in my life <laughs> this is some good viewing ratings right here <laughs> i don't know oh man that's gross so dr williams he was the local doctor that was there um there was you know lots of people there like i said and he is quoted as to saying don't go in there boys you'll regret it into the last day of your life clearly whoever took his brain or his skull bone didn't listen either so we're no gonna- no I really want to know if it's still out there. Just saying. This is a call to anybody out there that may have a piece of a skull. Does it exist? Please let us know. So we're just going to dive right into the suspects. There's a few. As you have probably guessed, there is... It's unsolved. Yeah. It is unsolved. I'll just... Foreshadowing, except for it's very obvious. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll start with the what they thought was the most obvious one. So this he was the first suspect they had. So it was a local man named Frank Jones. Okay. And he was a really tough local businessman, but was also a state senator. Oh. Who was actually very prominent 
in the Villisca's Methodist Church. So this was Methodist versus Presbyterian. Now, I could have looked up the differences, but unfortunately, I didn't. So I'm not sure the difference of them. Do you? I am not a religious folk, so no, I don't know. <laughs> I really only know, like, Anglican, right? Like, I don't know. But anyway, anyone who's listening, if you know the difference between those, then that's knowledge that I don't have. So thank you. <laughs> So Edgar Epperly, he was actually the leading authority on the murders. Now, there's like a lot of people involved in this crime over the years. So there's just going to be like a lot of names. Just don't be married to any of them. Okay. Because like there's just a lot, right? Yeah. So at this point, this Edgar guy, he's the leading authority on the murders. And it's reported that the town was actually like split along religious lines because of Frank Jones being the suspect. So basically, the Methodists insisted that Jones was innocent, and then the Presbyterian congregation were convinced of his guilt. So, like, really divided the town. Yeah. So Jones was never, like, formally charged with the involvement, but he was subject to a grand jury investigation. So why was he the the lead suspect? Oh, I'll get into it. Okay. It's coming. Hold your horses. So he was subject to a grand jury investigation and like pre- quite a prolonged campaign to, you know, uh, prove his guilt by the investigators. And this basically destroyed his political career. And many townspeople did think that he used his influence to get the case against him like totally squashed. Oh, okay. So there are two main reasons why Frank Jones could have had the motive to commit the murders. The first one is that Josiah actually had worked for Frank for like seven years. And his main job was a salesman of farm equipment. And Frank owned this like very well off uh, business and Josiah was really good at it. He was actually like the main salesman there. Like he did the most sales. But Frank made him work six days a week from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. And so Josiah was just, I'm good. And he left in 1907. So it's like a few years before the murders. And when he quit, he took the John Deere account with him and started his own business down the road. So Frank was like pissed. Because as we all know, John Deere is like now, like when someone tells me about farming equipment, I only know John Deere. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'm also. That's like the main one. And it has been for Looks like over 100 years. (laughs) Exactly. So the second reason is that it's actually rumored that Josiah was having an affair with Frank's daughter-in-law. Oh. And her name is Donna. Now, Donna was like a local beauty and was a little promiscuous. Yeah. No judgment at all. Girl, you get it. But she did have numerous affairs with people around the community. And the reason why people knew about it is because back then the phone lines were open, right? So you just pick up the phone and there's like an operator, right? Yeah. So when people were picking up the phone, they could hear her having like sexy conversations with other people. You do that over the phone if you know that there's somebody's listening. Like, yeah, I don't know. They just didn't know any other way, I guess. So, so this really led Frank and. Josiah to like totally hate each other. Yeah. Which I can get because if Josiah was like genuinely not having an affair with Donna, he'd be like, dude, you're trying to like ruin my reputation. Well, I mean, if it was him, it would make sense that Josiah is the one with all like the axe marks and like the true. But like, why would you go so far as to kill the whole family? Yeah. Like, what did they do? I don't understand why that 
why somebody with a budding, you know, senator career on the way would go down that route. <clears throat> For it sure. would make sense, like, to off him at a different point, but n- I don't know. Yeah, it's weird. It's, it's bringing a- too much heat. For sure. I totally agree. It's just like a little bit of a shaky motive to me. But by 1912, Frank and Josiah were at such odds with each other that they wouldn't even cross each other on the same side of the street. Like if one, one of the ones saw the other one coming, they'd cross the street. Like that's how much they like totally fucking hated each other. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, screw you, bro. <laughs> I'm going to walk over here now, but I can still see you. <laughs> yeah. So Frank was a little bit older than Josiah. Josiah was like 43 or 42 at the time of the murders, but Frank was actually 57. So like, could he have swung that axe himself so many times? If he was like a farmer or something, I would have said probably. But being somebody who's worked like a political career, that kind of stuff. I don't know. So townsfolk thought that he maybe just hired someone to commit the orders on his behalf because he was like quite well off and totally had the money to do so. That I could see. That sounds more plausible. Yeah. Which would mean that would be why the rest of the family died because they were witnesses. The Stillinger sisters are like unfortunate to me because they could have just left and left the girl, those girls alive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Not that I'm saying the other kids. But that's why I have, I have a feeling that whoever did it didn't actually know that they were there. Yeah, and they sprang upon them. Yeah. And the girl that probably that woke up and saw things. Yeah. Maybe she, like, traipsed upstairs and he ended up, like, killing her and then bringing her back down or something. Maybe. It's true. Or brought her back down and that's why there's all the defensive wounds and then killed her there. I don't know. No. <laughs> you know what? No one knows. No so one knows. it's not a bad theory no matter what you say. <laughs> So a few years after the murders, four years, this is 1916, there's this guy named James Wilkerson, and he's like a PI, and he works at this place called the Burns Detective Agency. And he actually announced that Frank had hired a killer by the name of William Mansfield. And we could do a whole other podcast on William Mansfield. He's like a kind of a weird dude. Wasn't he caught in a serial? Yeah. He was caught in another serial killer case, right? Yes. Okay, I knew the name. James thought that Frank had hired William to murder the man who had basically humiliated him. Okay. And so James basically tried to derail Frank's attempt at re-election at state senator, because now it is a few years after the murder and re-election is coming up. Yeah. So he succeeded, and he actually had a grand jury convene and consider the evidence that James had gathered about William Mansfield and him being the one who committed the murders. Okay. And the main evidence that he presented to the grand jury is that William had this sort of background for the job to commit the murders. And his background was, like you said, in that in 1914, he was the main suspect in the axe murders... Yeah. Of his wife, her parents, and his own child in Blue Island, Illinois. I've heard of this one. So, unfortunately for James, though, William Mansfield had a very tight alibi on the night of the Villisca Mm. Axe murder killings. And his payroll records showed that he was working several hundred miles away at the time of the murders. Interesting. Okay. But Ross, so this is Josiah's brother, and Joe Stillinger, it's the father of the girls, yeah. they totally believe that Jones is guilty. They, they said that, like, the whole time until their death. 
So another like interesting theory, and nothing's really said of this, is that people, like you said, find it really weird that the girls were in the bedroom downstairs by themselves when they're having a sleepover. Usually yeah. they'd be like together, right? Yeah. So people actually think that all the kids maybe were together in the room upstairs. And the reason why it was like a guest bedroom downstairs is because someone was staying with the Moore family. But wouldn't one of their neighbors know? Exactly. Like, wouldn't it be... Okay, I had another theory on this, and I was I had, was listening to something else earlier. And so it said that the girl, those two girls that were there, the Stillingers, were very... They were there a lot. And they so much that at one point they were, like, barely ever home. So I'm like, what if that bedroom was kind of for them? Because yeah. they were taking care of these other kids. It's just sometimes that's just what people do. Maybe. And that's totally plausible. Yeah. It's just like back in those days, it was like a little odd to have like a spare bedroom. You yeah. wouldn't really well, have. Especially if you have four kids, why would you have them all in one bedroom upstairs? Yeah. You'd have like the two boys in one and two girls in the other. Exactly. Which, yeah. So it is a little strange. It is. And like nothing's really ever said of that. It's just kind of like a theory. No yeah. one really knows who that Unless person would like be. it was like a study or something like that, like an office or whatever. I don't know. Did you, did you look at the photos? Because it was like very clearly a bedroom. Yeah, there was a bed. All a dresser. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. The next suspect is someone named Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. Lynn, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. Yeah. And it's Jacqueline, like Jack, J-A-C-K. L-I-N. Okay. Interesting. Is it a guy or... It's a guy. Okay. So, to a lot of other people, uh, Mr. Kelly was a far stronger candidate for the murders. Lynn was actually an English immigrant and a preacher. Okay. And he was actually known as being a sexual deviant with a well-recorded mental problem. Oh. Okay. I didn't wasn't able to find out what maybe the mental problem was back then. They mental health didn't know either. Yeah, mental health was like non-existent they almost. Probably just thought he was a weirdo. Yeah. So he had actually been in Villisca the night of the murders. He showed up the day before, I believe I read. And he even freely admitted that he had actually left on the dawn train just before the bodies were discovered. It was like a 5.14 a.m. train. Okay. So some people didn't think that Lynn was good for the job because he was actually only five foot two and 119 pounds. But in every other way, he totally fit the bill for the killings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, if you have an axe and you're, you come, like, if they're sleeping, I guess it wouldn't, it just depends if you could swing an axe that many times. Yeah. Like, it sounds like from the description that the axe was, like, swung a lot. But that doesn't. But if you're in a, if you're in a elevated state and you're running on a pure adrenaline, like. Exactly. Yeah. Not plausible. Lynn was also left-handed. And the coroner had actually determined through blood spatters that the killer most likely swung the axe in this way to be left-handed. Oh. Yeah. So Lynn was also obsessed with sex. And he had been caught peering into the windows in Villisca two days before the murders. Creeper. So he's a peeping Tom. (laughs) Totally. Which, about the window thing, covering the windows. Yeah. Yeah. Making sure other people didn't see. Exactly. So, (laughs) 
we're going to talk about just a lot of things to do with this guy. There's a lot of information on him. He's kind of a weird dude. So we're going to fast forward to 1914, a couple years after the murders, and Lynn is now living in Winner, South Dakota. He's not a winner, though. No, but no. he wanted to be. Yeah. So he started to advertise in the Omaha World Herald newspaper looking for a girl stenographer to do confidential work and that the successful candidate must be willing to pose as a model. So a woman named Jessamine Harsin, she responded to the ad, and she received a letter back from Mr. Kelly, which was described by a judge as, okay, so obscene, lewd, and I'm going to totally mess up this word, but lachifus, and filthy as to be offensive to this honorable court and improper to be spread upon the record thereof. So the judge was like pissed. Oh, yeah. One of them were also prudes back in the day. Oh, yeah. Probably wasn't that bad. Or it could have been. I don't know. Who I'd knows? Be very interested to see. Yeah. So one of the milder instructions attached to this, the only one I could really find, was that she would be required to just type in the nude. What a creeper. Weird, like, right? Like that's a ten thousand red flags flying right at you. Oh yeah. So there was some attachments to Lynn and the Moore family. He did attend the children's day service that day at the Presbyterian Church. And townsfolk actually believed that Lynn saw the family and became obsessed with them. Because he's like a little peeper. And that he spied on them that evening, just like he had with others. Hmm. So in 1917, a grand jury was assembled to hear the evidence linking him with Lena's murder. Just Lena. The one with the raised nighty, which was super weird. How how can um, I'm I don't, sorry in that situation? How can you be only charged with one? I feel like if it's one, it's all. I know. I am not sure either. There wasn't really any information on that, but maybe they were just trying to get him with one. The only thing I could find is that it was the only one that would work with his past offenses because he was like a sexual deviant. Okay. And if he didn't touch any of those kids, there'd be grounds for... I get it. Okay. Yeah. I think they're pulling out a little bit of straws here, but what can you do? So the evidence that was against him was that he actually sent bloody clothing to the laundry in the next town over of Macedonia. And an elderly couple came forward and said that they were also on the 5.14 a.m. train from Villisca that morning and that they saw Lynn. And that Lynn had mentioned to them that there were eight souls that were murdered in Villisca that morning, but they the bodies weren't found for another like hour and a half. So how would he know that? Exactly. So it also emerged that Lynn had returned to Villisca a week later and had shown great interest in the murders and even walked into the house when there was detectives there and posed as a Scotland Yard agent. To find out information. Oh, this is the one that was like, I'm a, I'm a detective or a... Yeah. And then... <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So he actually, um, in 1917, he was repeatedly interrogated. This is when the grand jury is going on and they just think he's the guy. Like, yeah. they just think he's the guy. And he actually signed a confession letter. And it said, killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to my mind and picked up the axe and went into the house and killed them all. 
Wow. Lynn would actually later recant this statement. And then the elderly couple also claimed that they, who spoke to him on the train, they also changed their story. But why? <laughs> I know. Were they just trying to, like, be a part of it? Or were they being threatened by somebody else? Like, if you give a statement, can't you be charged with falsifying a statement then? Like... Yeah, like, it's definitely um, illegal to lie to a federal agent now. And, I mean, you're giving it in writing, so isn't that worse? <laughs> <laughs> right. You're like, you signed this. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. There's no information about that, but who knows? They could have been threatened. For yeah. sure. So, unfortunately, with both of these stories changing, there was very little actual physical evidence to, you know, firmly tie him to the killings. Yeah. So they had two grand juries vote. Uh, the first grand jury came to a deadlock. It was 11 to 1 in favor of refusing to indict him. And then the second panel ended up freeing him. And that's it. He went off to live a life. Pervert. Yeah. Wow. But I, I sit there and think, I'm like, what, what could they really use as evidence back then? Like, you'd need, like, something... Pretty freaking solid. So the weird thing is, is the person wore gloves. And what's interesting about that is why would they wear gloves? Right. So it's something to think about because William Mansfield, say he did it. He knew that his fingerprints were in the system. Oh, yeah, because he's been arrested before. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think like a local townsfolk would like put those two and two together? Like, if they've never committed a crime before. But the, but wasn't his alibi, like, rock solid? Like His is was rock solid. But maybe the someone else who did do the crime. Maybe he has a... Maybe William Mansfield knew a partner, like, had a partner, or, like... Yeah. Or knew somebody that was just as fucked up as he is. Or whoever did it had done it before. And yeah. had been caught and had been to jail, and that's why they wore gloves. Had Lynn been to jail? No, not that no. I read. After, maybe, I assume, because, like, you. Yeah. So next we're going to talk about Henry Lee Moore. No relation to the Moore family. It's just a a common name. So in 1911 to 1912, there was actually a chain of axe murders in communities across the Midwest of the United States. And this actually suggested that there was a transient serial killer at work. Yeah. So it was actually researched by this woman named Beth Klingensmith, and she had suggested that she had 10 incidents that occurred close to the railroad tracks in locations from Rainier, Washington, all the way to Monmouth, Illinois, and that most of the crimes had actually had similarities to the Villisca murders. Okay, so they could have been part of that. For sure. So a lot of people did recognize this pattern. So we're going to talk about a few people in this, like, from now going forward. So she wasn't the, she might have been the first one, but she wasn't the last. Yeah. So the pattern was first pointed out in 1913 by a special agent named Matthew McClory of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation. This is the pre-FBI. They end up turning into the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So he suggested that the murder of the family of six in a Colorado Springs in September of 1911 was the first of the serial killings. And then two more incidents in Monmouth. Unfortunately, one was with a pipe and not an axe. 
And then there's another one in Ellsworth, Texas, where eight people died in total. And then two more people were murdered afterwards in Paula, Kansas. So four days before the Velisca murders, though, someone murdered Roland Hudson and his wife. And then the last killing would be after Velisca at the end of 1912 in December. And that, that was the murders of Mary Wilson and her daughter, Georgia, in Columbia, Missouri. Hmm. Now, the only thing I'm going to comment on all of those was what was really weird is when they mentioned Roland Hudson and his wife, they felt the need to label her as his unfaithful wife. They didn't give her name. They just said someone murdered Roland Hudson and his unfaithful wife. And I was like, what? Like, what's what's the purpose of that? Shame. <laughs> like, what? They hated women back then. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> not always back then. <laughs> Shit happens today. Right. Anyways. Yeah. I digress. <laughs> no, I totally agree. <laughs> Special Agent McClary's theory was that Henry Lee Moore, who was actually Georgia's son, the last people in Columbia, Missouri. So, okay. So in December 1912, the last one of the ten was Mary Wilson and her daughter Georgia. And that Georgia's son was the one that they thought was doing the killings. So he was a convict. And he had a history of violence... And they thought that they he could totally be responsible for all of them. Now, he is a very, very strong suspect. He was released from prison in Kansas shortly before the murders began. And then he was actually arrested in Missouri shortly after they ended. Interesting. And he, yes. And he was eventually convicted of the final murders of his mom and his grandmother. And his motive for that was that he would have obtained the deed to the family house. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So there were a lot of similarities. So not all of them, but like a few were um, seven out of the 10, they were covered with sheets. Yeah. Four out of 10, the windows and the mirrors were covered. Uh, Eight out of the 10 was with an ax. Three out of the 10 were committed on a Sunday. And eight out of the ten were right beside a train station. So similarities, but nothing like super concrete, in my opinion. Yeah, that's. I feel like is there some is there anything that was like ten out of ten across the board? No. If that's somebody's motive or like whatever it is, is that's what they get off. Their on. mo. Yeah, their mo. If that was their mo, like signature. Was there, sexual, was there sexual abuse through the entire thing? Was there not like? What, what's... Oh! There's, if there's no... The weapon was always left at the house, too. Was Did the weapon belong at the house? That's my question. That was my next thing to you, is I know two of them were with a pipe, but what if they didn't have an axe available? That's what I was thinking. Maybe what if a pipe was, like, the closest thing they had to an axe? Hmm. It's interesting. It is. I'm not totally sold on him. Not yeah. totally. I mean, it would make sense, but... Agreed. What's... Yeah. So we have one more suspect. Oh God, there's a lot. Hey? Oh my God, so many murders, so <laughs> no. little time. I know, and it's not—it's unsolved, and there's so many suspects. It's just a shame. Yeah. So this one's Paul Mueller, or maybe Miller, and this is actually from a book that was published in 2017 called "The Man from the Train." 
And this was written by Bill James and his daughter, Rachel McCarthy. And they discussed the Villisca murders are part of a larger scales of murders that were all committed by the same single serial killer. So they had exactly the same theory as Mr. McClary and the other researcher. Yeah. So they believed it was this Paul Mueller or Miller, who was an immigrant from Germany, who was actually the subject of an unsuccessful year-long manhunt as the sole suspect in the 1897 murder of a family in West Brookfield, Massachusetts, who had employed him as a farmhand. Bill James started his research to solve the Villisca murders, and in the research, he found a lot of archived and newspaper stories detailing dozens of family slains under similar circumstances all across the U.S. Can we just pause to appreciate the manual research they would have had to do done back then? <laughs> no. Like, I'm sitting there thinking, like, how many things that they would have had gone and researched like, we just look it up on our phones, or, like, they would go well, to some sort of, like, police is, database, but this back is, then they'd have to call around and... This is in 2017, the book. Oh, the book is, but, so when, oh, okay. So, but still, though, I don't I don't know how long he was researching for, but for him to go over 100 years, he would have had to, like, go to the library and pull out all the newspapers so and all of that. what called, where they, like, flip up the yeah. Old newspapers? Yeah. So, like, totally a long time. I totally yeah. appreciate Like, Bill's a boss. Boss-ass Bill. <laughs> So, Bill believed that this Villisca murder was part of a huge killing spree that lasted actually over a decade, and that he calculated that at least 59 people had died in 14 separate incidents. And Bill said there was actually a lot of common features to the crime. So, he found out that the killer always selected families who lived near railroad tracks, seemingly struck at about midnight when the victims were asleep, not one of them, it was in the day. They used a blunt side of an axe rather than the blade to strike the victims in the head and the face. The weapon was always found at the scene, like I said, left in plain sight. Victims were covered with blankets, windows were covered from the inside of the house, and the door was always locked when left. Interesting. Yeah. And that's what the book is about. It's called The Man from the Train, which makes sense. Yeah. And that's all that really came from a book. There's, like, no solution. Some guy did come forward, like an investigator, and said that that book actually details what actually probably happened to the family. It sounds plausible, like. For sure. And, like, back in the day, like, how can you really connect all of them? Like, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, very hard. It's hard now. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, wow. Well, I mean, it's a little easier now. So unfortunately, none of the suspects, like I said, ever led to an actual solution. But the one thing that is still standing is the house. So the house has actually gone through approximately eight owners since the Moore family, the most recent being in 1994 and was purchased by a man named Darwin Lynn and his wife. And they actually just totally or successfully restored the house to its original condition at the time of the murders because they're... Creepy as fuck like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in 1997, the house was actually added to the National Register of Historic Places. In- okay, but that's an old-ass house. Eight, 1846 or 1866? 1868. 1868 is when it was built. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, like it's old as hell. Damn. <laughs> old as hell. It, it, it is hell in there. So. Did anybody live in there after? Yeah. Creepy. They did. The house is said to be haunted, and things like giggling, unexplained movements, strange fogs moving from room to room. Yeah, that house is for show haunted. Yeah, are all said to be reported there. You can visit the house in the daytime for $10 per person, $5 for seniors. If- <laughs> <laughs> 
They get seniors get freaked out for less. Don't worry about <laughs> yeah. it. And you can stay overnight in the house for $428 a night. Oh, yeah. Totally Airbnb that. Which includes up to... Haunted Airbnb. No. Which in, <laughs> which includes up to six guests. And you have any more guests, it's an additional 75 bucks. That's actually not a bad deal. It's not even 100 bucks per person. Not bad. Now, I wanted to see if there had been any, like, actual reports of anything creepy there mm-hmm. for any of my listeners on my Ed and Lorraine Warren episode. Yeah. Like, you know, like, someone had a car crash when they left the Annabelle doll and stuff. So, I was wondering if anything, like, creepy had happened. I only found one thing, which is just weird because I couldn't find anything else on it. I have one line. Okay, so okay. get ready. So, on November 7th, 2014, Robert Larson Jr., injured himself inside the house during a tour by stabbing himself in the chest. He stabbed He stabbed himself in the chest with what? An axe while he was in the house. Maybe he was a murderer. <laughs> maybe someone possessed or him. Or maybe he was a pedophile. Maybe the murderer possessed him. Why would the murderer be back in the house though? <laughs> no, I mean like possessed him because he's a ghost. He's obviously not alive. <laughs> it's 2014. So he stabbed himself. He stabbed and himself. he lived. Like he went to the hospital, and he was like, "Fine." So, so out of those suspects, who do you think most likely did it? <sighs> the last one, Paul Mueller or Miller? Yeah, I think so too. I think it was a serial. Yeah, but I'm almost. It, it feels like to me like there might have been a couple, like two people involved. It does seem like quite extensive for it to only be one person. It does. It, I feel like maybe not even in the murder, it's in murder itself, but like somebody else knew about it. Like it can't just be a drifter. It can't just be someone who came to town and was like those people. It just seems so weird to me. I feel. I feel like they had to have known them. May, okay, here's throwing the theory out there. Maybe the drifter was like at this church, like stopped off. Saw the church thing happen. Saw the creepy dude, um, Lynn, right? Yeah. Lynn. Saw Lynn, and Lynn was like, oh, yeah, that family. Hoo-hoo. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like, I'm going to kill him later. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, all right. Yeah, it's weird because they, they found cigarettes in the attic that suggested people were up there, or a person at least. There was two cigarettes. But then they also found, like, an indentation in the barn and some hay right at the right at a window in the barn. So were there two people and one was keeping watch and one was inside? Maybe. Not exactly the worst idea. Because no. if if those two things are related, which it doesn't mean that they are. No. Like, they don't know. No. But why did he stay in the barn first and wait until they, you know what I mean? Like, why would they wait Maybe in Maybe one guy places? picks out the family and the other one, maybe it's like a dual psychosis. Like... I don't know, Maybe. all those criminal minds things when they always talk about the partners. <laughs> like, there's, like, the dominant one, the submissive yeah. one. Like, one does the lookout maybe, and usually doesn't actually touch the family. That's fair. And then maybe the last guy's thing was the little girl with his her skirt up. Maybe. Yeah, it's weird. So I do have some additional notes I thought were interesting. Okay. So I don't know about anyone else, but, like, if you go to, like, newyork.com it'll be like a website for that city right and they're just like oh like welcome to the city there's some tourist attractions right so the domain name on for villisca iowa is just about the murder house it's not about villisca iowa at all it's just about the murder house so like their domain of their town is just about 
This house. I mean, <laughs> what? I don't know. Maybe nothing else. Anything else exciting has ever happened since then, and they're just like living for the touristy shit. <laughs> I thought it was um, a little bizarre. It is super bizarre. A Mary Peckman. She was the next door neighbor yeah. who let out the chickens. She actually suffered a nervous breakdown afterwards, and she actually died shortly after the murders. She was like pretty traumatized, I guess. Oh shit. Now, there was a man that, who was named Joe Ricks. He was another suspect. I didn't really want to go into full detail on him. The only thing about him getting connected to the crimes that I, I found was that he was arrested in Monmouth, Illinois, on the train the day after the murders because he actually stepped off of the train wearing shoes that were covered in blood, and he was on a train that came from Villisca. Oh. So that was a little interesting. Now, I didn't mention a lot about the surviving Stillinger family. There really wasn't a lot of information on them. Now, they did have six children in total. Two, obviously, were the girls that were murdered in the Felisca family. But unfortunately, they did end up losing their infant son just two months after the murder of the daughters. Oh, God. I know. So they only had half of their children that survived. That's horrific. Super horrific. Now, I just thought this was interesting, but the Murder House has a Google rating of 4.3 stars out of 5 <laughs> out of 415 Google reviews. <laughs> they all say it's haunted. I didn't even read the reviews. I couldn't be bothered. I was like, I'm not even clicking. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to do that later. <laughs> for sure. Now, my last little note here, I thought this was just a fun fact. It's weird saying fun fact on a podcast, but you guys will know what I mean. Yeah. I think this is kind of a fun fact, but the murders were so horrifying that it is said that it actually took the sinking of the RMS Titanic, which occurred two months earlier, off the front page of the newspapers. Wow. It was the first thing to do that in two months. So I'm not sure if that's fun or just a fact. It's (laughs) a fact that could maybe be fun. Oh my god, that's so horrible. (laughs) So, that is the Felissa Axe Murder House. That is just some crazy stuff. I don't don't think we'll find out. It will never be solved, unfortunately. Um, But, you know, I feel for that family. I think it was awful what happened to them. Mm -hmm. No doubt. I think it's weird that a hundred and... Nine years later, they're still very much promoting this evil event. I, yeah. That like, so seems, strongly, too. That seems like, I get it as a haunted house. I did hear something earlier that, like, there's actually a lot of different recordings of, like, hauntings in that house. And, like, there's, yeah, some creepy stuff on camera. Anyways, but, like, I would understand it promoting it as a haunted house. But, like, just specifically, like, reliving that murder. That's just... That's just weird. Yeah. But, you know, each to their own. Like, they probably make a good money off of that. I absolutely bet they do. There, I learned about this whole niche market of, like, haunted travelers. <laughs> like, it's a crazy market around the world. It is, for <laughs> sure. And, like, if they'll post a YouTube video about it, like, I'm watching it. So, like, why not? I wouldn't actively seek it out. But, I like, if it was there, I'd totally watch it. I would never stay in a haunted house. Like, I totally would. I don't think I would be. I, I, would, I wouldn't do it alone, but I definitely would. I would lose my mind. I don't think I'd sleep. Like, not at all. I think I would go there knowing that I wasn't going to sleep, though. Yeah, like a really long nap prior. <laughs> yeah. Meet you there at 10, 
Um, you can't sleep and bring your flashlight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So the next two episodes we're doing, the next one, I'm going to be covering a few different murders that actually happened on Halloween night. So thought that would be interesting to dive yeah. into. Um, surprisingly, a lot. A lot occurred. I can see it. It's a creepy night. For sure. Yeah. So there's a lot for me to choose from, but all of them are really interesting. I don't think I can go wrong. And then the last time I'm going to do is like witchy related murders so i think those will be interesting i absolutely let's spook it up yeah and then thank you for katie for joining me you're welcome thanks for having me again yeah for anyone who didn't realize katie did join me on the mindy tran episode if you listen to that one so we actually this one's not local this time we went it's not we went out of the local (laughs) we don't really have a ton of murders here no, there is a couple we could do, though. The thing is, is unfortunately, the few that are in Kelowna that have been pretty prevalent involve children. Yeah. And Canada is very good at hiding a lot of information when it involves children. So, mm-hmm. by all means, I would do a podcast. It just wouldn't be very long. It's not as detailed no. at all. We could branch it out to BC, though. For sure. BC murders. And there's a couple people that I just refuse to do. Um, in my opinion, if you committed murder to become famous, I refuse to do a podcast on you. Totally. Well, thank you so much for listening. And obviously, if you want to catch up on the podcast or see what's going on, my Instagram is Murder Sandwich Podcast. And if anyone has any suggestions on future podcasts, feel free to message me on Instagram. And otherwise, happy sandwiching. <laughs> And have a great rest of your day or night or whenever you're listening to this. Good night. Bye.